Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, whether you are with us here in the room, it's so good to hear your voices uh, during the singing. I don't know if that's because, you know, the, the band isn't here, and, but it's just so much easier to hear you, much easier than I remember it, which was, which was lovely. You guys sound really good. Give yourselves a hand for that. If you are, uh, I didn't actually think you were going to do it. That's cool, too. Uh, whether you are with us online or you're going to be joining us later on this afternoon, we're just we're glad you're here. Uh, and if you are joining us for the first or second time, whether that's uh, in person, some of you, like I may not know if you've been here more than two or three times, right? Because I was only here three times before we, we closed down. Um, but if you're joining us online, we hope you'll click on the Connect card. We'd love to get to know you, know how we can pray for you. Uh, we are in the fourth week of our Lenten series on the practice of Sabbath, and usually at this point in the series, I would be thinking, right, we've kind of got the basics, we've got the knowledge base there, now all that is really left is for it to kind of sink into our bodies, to kind of get into our bones and begin to shape the way that we uh, interact with God and with one another throughout the remaining six days of the week. Uh, we've got the information that we need, and now it's time for the formation, letting what we know get to work on us. We need teaching and practices in community, and uh, the teaching is important. That's why I like to take my time on Sunday mornings, but it's the practices in community with others where the Spirit really starts to root these things in our lives. Uh, but I was reading this article on leadership by John Cotter this week, and he makes the point that most leaders under-communicate vision by a factor of 10, meaning that for every one thing that I and our teaching team want you to know, how many times do we need to say it? 10 times, right? Yes. So we are now in week four of our 40-week series on the Sabbath. We're just going to cruise through the rest of 2021. I'm kidding, right? No, we're not going to do that. But as I'm thinking about this, uh, this conversation that I've had with my community group a couple weeks ago, where out of nine of us, only one really had this sense of the Sabbath as something that was life-giving uh, practice in their life. And it's not to say that the others of us didn't have routines on Sunday morning. In my house, uh, at least when I was young, uh, there were certain certainties on a Sunday morning, uh, church on Sunday, donuts after church, right? That was just like guaranteed. Uh, and then right around the time I was 10 or 11, it was just donuts after church, which honestly, I was fine with that when I was 10 years old. Christians from the West, in this kind of particular cultural moment that we live in, we have this kind of trained indifference toward the Sabbath. Uh, and it makes it really hard for us to understand just how central the practice of Sabbath keeping was to Israel's identity. Uh, the 20th century essayist Ahad Ha'am said that more than the Jews have kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the Jews. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s uh, when I was having a, a regular series of conversations with a spiritual director that the practice of Sabbath really began to take shape in my life. It was part of this, this broader turn in my life toward a more ordered and kind of more practice-based uh, relationship with God and, and how I lived out my faith. And I should note that I had already been a pastor for about 10 years at this point. 
Um, I say that because, like a lot of you, I am not immune to workaholic tendencies. Uh, And not just because I happen to love what I do, but because sometimes it's easier to just put my head down and work than it is to allow God into those weathered spots in my life. But I will say, imperfect though my Sabbath practices are, they are way, way better. There's a better rhythm than there was six or seven years ago. And now I I just, I can't imagine going back. At the end of a great week, Sabbath is the place where I go to celebrate and to to drink deep. At At the end of a really bad week, Sabbath is the place where I go and receive rest and renewal from God. It has, in my life, become more than a practice. It has become a means of grace. And it's something that we see um, all throughout the life of Jesus. Uh, The Sabbath is not just something we do. It's something by which the Spirit does something to us. It's, It's not just about one day of the week. It's about how we live in relationship with God. And as I said, like, we see this in Jesus. His life bears the marks of rest. He saw Sabbath as a day of renewal, and his practices on that day point toward the renewal that marks the kingdom of God that he is making a present reality with us and through us. So with that, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 23. And uh, go on through chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to work through the passage, and then I'm just going to say a few words about what it means for us. So friends, listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pluck some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is only lawful for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. God, we ask now that by the power of your spirit you would come upon us, that we would hear your word, that it would reach into the recesses of our hearts and 
bring about the new life that you promise. We ask this through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, if you read throughout the Gospels, you will notice that uh, Sabbath was a day for Jesus where he liked to kind of get into some trouble. Uh, he, he kinda, the kind of trouble that shakes things up and you know, sort of sets things right. By Mark 2, right, second chapter of the gospel, he has already been teaching and healing on the seventh day. He's already had a run-in with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. And the debate that we come into this morning is over healing, whether it is okay to heal on the Sabbath or not. Put another way, is healing in the category of work or is it in the category of rest and restoration? All of that begs the question, who gets to make the categories in the first place? Well, in Mark, we find Jesus out walking through the wheat fields. His disciples, as they are just kind of walking along, doing what they were doing anyway, they start to pluck some heads of grain and snack on it. And the Pharisees are apparently doing a stakeout so they can confront Jesus and ask him what this is all about. Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Apparently to them, snacking is against the law. Except there is absolutely nothing in the Torah that suggests that noshing on grain is a violation. All it says is, on the Sabbath, you shall do no work. Which begs another question, which is one that I'm sure some of you have been thinking about ever since we started this uh, series on the Sabbath. What exactly is considered work? What exactly is considered rest? Turns out it's actually not that easy to define. Uh, rest is even harder to define. Take hiking, for example. Right? Is it work or is it rest? For some people, there is nothing better than burning our muscles to find a vista point where we can take in the beauty and the wonder of God's artistry, these, these moments where you find peace and joy just kind of flooding back into your body. They're like oxygen for your soul. For others, hiking is all sweat and mosquitoes and sunburns, and it's like hell to you. Pray for those people. I pray for people who are in the first category, but who have kids in the second category. What about cooking, right? Now, some of you, you come alive like Remy from Ratatouille when the idea of cooking is, uh, is about, right? You, you get into the kitchen and it's your canvas. You get to create and laugh and enjoy and use your gifts. For others, cooking is another name for the monotony and drudgery of everyday life, right? If you're a chef, Sabbath is a chance to rest from your work. If you're a software engineer or something like that, maybe cooking is life-giving to you. My point is that it is not so black and white as all that. Some things are clearly work, right? Digging ditches, uh, coding, uh, sales calls, creating spreadsheets. These are the things that you do that you get paid for. Um, other things are clearly rest, uh, sleeping, Reading a novel just for fun, uh, sitting out on a hammock in your backyard, laughing for no reason at all, right? These are things that are, are life-giving, but there is a whole lot of messy stuff in between. Cooking might be life-giving, 
Doing dishes, never life-giving. And so as a reminder, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, a good rule of thumb, if you're trying to figure that out, what is work, what is rest, a couple questions. One, does this bring joy to my soul? Does it allow me to delight in God? Uh, Pete Scazzaro, who wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, talks about how uh, the way that our culture has kind of distorted pleasure and goodness it means that for a lot of Christians, we actually have difficulty in receiving joy, in, in delighting, in receiving pleasure. We suffer from what he calls a delight deficiency. But Sabbath is an invitation to say yes to joy, to say yes to goodness. Second question, does this promote worship of God? Does this draw me into an appreciation of and delight in God? Is, is what I'm doing a, a foretaste of that eternal celebration that awaits in the city of God? And if the answer is yes, then go for it. The answer is no, don't sweat. You've literally got six other days to do those things. But the ambiguity and, and the, the freedom is actually, I think, a very beautiful thing. Not to say that it's not without its problems, though, right? Uh, this is the whole setup for the conflict that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. Uh, and just a word on them. We have this kind of, I think, two-dimensional picture of the Pharisees as this like, super uptight, really conservative kind of like religious police corps or something like that. And there's, there's a little bit of a, a touch of truth in that, but they were also, they were good. They were, they were devout. They were wise, holy men whose lineage and longings is born out of the experience of the exile. Right, so think back a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Ezra and Nehemiah, and we have this image of the people weeping over the Torah, reading it, and, and, and weeping over the distance between the lives that they were living, where they had treated the Torah just like it was some dusty scroll in grandpa's attic, and, and the vision that the Torah actually has about this flourishing uh, the, of God's people that it promotes. The, the, the Pharisees, they, they, they come out of this group that were under the boots of Babylon. Then they come back home and they find themselves under the boot of Rome. And so they were this group that thought, hey, look, if, if violating Torah is what got us into this mess, then surely keeping the Torah is what is going to bring us out of it. And so in practical terms, by Jesus' day, the teachers of the law from the Pharisaical school of thought they, they just had gotten really granular about what keeping the law meant. And so in addition to the 613 laws that actually exist in the Old Testament, the rabbis would employ this practice of building a fence around the law, which was uh, you know, a way of creating all kinds of different uh, additional rules and regulations about what did and what did not constitute keeping the law. And so take a command like, uh, on the Sabbath you shall do no work. Well, that gets broken down into 39 different categories of what work might be. As I was thinking about this, um, I was reminded of these uh, perennial debates that the National Park Service has uh, about the summit of Half Dome. 
Uh, there's this place at the top of Half Dome in Yosemite called the Diving Board. And it's this natural rock formation that just kind of juts out 8,800 feet over Yosemite Valley. To be clear, this is not a picture of your pastor up there. Uh, but this one is. This next picture is. So, yeah, I look at that now and I'm like, this is what an unformed prefrontal cortex looks like. Uh, this, these are the kinds of things you do. But there, there are all these signs along the cables that say, you know, danger, keep back. And there has been all this talk in recent years about the need to build a fence around the, the summit of Half Dome, kind of like they have on certain portions of the Grand Canyon, because sadly, more often than, than you would like to think about, people actually do fall in. Same idea. The rabbinic tradition took this Sabbath command, do not work, and they built a fence around it. Uh, 39 categories, like I said. Some of them make sense. Uh, no, no plowing, no hunting, no butchering. Others, not so much. Uh, you can't tie a knot on the Sabbath. You can't tie more than one stitch. Uh, you can't set a dislocated shoulder. I don't know, I, I imagine it's a lot more work to listen to someone complaining about a dislocated shoulder than it would be to pop it back into place. But there's this whole separate collection of rabbinic teachings actually popped up called the Mishnah, and they, they grew out of this so that they became the authoritative interpretation of the law. So that, in addition to the 613 laws, a number of 1,500 additional laws were brought in to clarify and stipulate what it meant to keep those 613 laws. All right, so quick question. How many of you are temperamentally predisposed toward rule keeping? A couple of you, right? You're, you're, you're hearing this and you're like, I don't see what the problem is. I appreciate the clarity, right? Not throwing shade at all. To be clear, I think the, the hard posture behind this is good. It's actually to lift up the law, to give honor to God. This is a good thing. There is a lot of wisdom in the tradition. There are some good things in there. There are some not so much. But as with a lot of good things over time, tradition can get morphed into something else and you end up serving the tradition rather than the tradition pointing you toward that which is good and life-giving. And so Jesus' response to all of this is profound. He is not anti-Torah as, the, as the, the religious leaders are accusing him. He's just not down with their interpretation of it. And so after retelling the story of David, he says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And this, this two-sentence saying of Jesus is really deep. And like I said at the beginning, I think it's hard for us to kind of translate this into 21st century American because our world is so different from first century Judaism. It's easy for us to read this and to think that Jesus is down on the law, that Sabbath is irrelevant, that we're free from all that. 
But I think that says way more about us and what we read into the Bible than it does about what the actual story and what Jesus is actually getting at. Because, you know, as I said a few weeks ago, the Sabbath is not something that is rooted in the law. It is rooted in the very heart of creation itself. And so Jesus is not anti-Sabbath. He has this distinct rhythm all throughout his ministry, all throughout his life. He's always popping up and teaching and healing on the Sabbath. In fact, most of his healings take place on the Sabbath. And every time the disciples go out on mission, he pulls them back into a, a pattern of rest. He is more concerned about establishing in them a rhythm of rest than he is about hearing about how things went on their mission trips. And so somewhere along the way, these teachers of the law, they, they lost sight of what Sabbath is about and and what God's heart is in it. And so Jesus is pointing them back. Uh, in his book, Garden City, John Mark Comer makes this observation that I think is spot on when he writes this. First century Jews needed to hear the second part of Jesus' teaching. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They had it backwards. The Sabbath isn't a cold, arbitrary rule we have to obey. It's a life-giving art form that we get to practice. But I would argue that 21st century Americans need to hear the first part of Jesus' teaching. The Sabbath was made for man. It's not that we have too many rules about the Sabbath, it's that we don't have any at all. I think so often we want Jesus to let us off the hook because there is something inconvenient and culturally unacceptable about a day in which we do nothing at all. It's, it's, it's you know, lazy, un-American, whatever, right? I mean, we love to play and, and laugh and have fun, and that's all part of it. But very few of us actually set aside a day for nothing more than allowing God to renew our souls. And I think that's more important now than ever before. And I think particularly as things begin to open up and we have to ask that question, are we going to go right back into this culture of acceleration and constant movement and nonstop digital distraction where there are alerts after text messages, after news updates, after bespoke advertisements, pulling our hearts in all kinds of different directions? Are we going to go back into this world where there's so much to do and experience and eat and not enough time to do it all? What's the scaffolding we're going to put up? where one day out of the week, we can simply rest and catch our breath and allow the Spirit of God to breathe life into our bodies and our souls. For Jesus, that's what Sabbath is about. And the story actually isn't over at the end of chapter two. In, in the Gospels, there are not uh, chapter breaks in there, and so chapter three, goes right into this one. Mark intends it to be seen as a continuation of the story from chapter two. We find Jesus again in a synagogue teaching, as was his practice. And on this day, there is a man there with a withered hand, some kind of paralysis. And notice that the conflict gets kicked up a notch. The religious leaders show up, this time with the expect purpose of finding a reason to charge him. 
And so Jesus, knowing what is going on there, has the man stand up. He's not going to hide this. It's not going to be one of those things of like, oh, I'm going to heal you, but don't tell anybody. He has him stand up in public. And as he does this, he asks the Pharisees directly, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil, to bring life or to bring death? What are they actually plotting to do? They are plotting to bring death. He wants to bring life. And they're silent about this. And Jesus has two emotions. He is mad and he is grieved. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He does it and the hand is completely restored. And the Pharisees, they throw a party because someone got healed in worship. No, that's not what they do. They plot to kill him. And we wonder why secular people think religious people are crazy, right? But it's just to show how far off the script they have gotten. And so all of this frames the question, is Sabbath this outdated legalistic practice that we need to abandon? And if we think that, I think we are missing the heart of the story. Friends, Jesus heals on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is a day for renewal. It is a a sign that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. And if we're going to live as citizens of that kingdom, it's not going to be because we are free from Sabbath, but because Sabbath gets into us and transforms us and how we operate the remaining days of the week. In the Gospels, Jesus does some of his best work on the Sabbath. Friends, Jesus still does some of his best work on the Sabbath. He does this in his spirit, in his truth, in his community. We all know what it's like to be beaten up by life. Uh, Sometimes the week just feels like a knockdown street fight, right? Whether that's because of relational pain, whether that's because of heartbreaking news we've gotten from a doctor, uh, hardship at work, the relentless news cycle, whatever. You just get tired. You get worn down. You, You head into the weekend just kind of sore and limping. We need the Lord of the Sabbath to meet us there week after week to provide healing, to provide renewal, because when things get hard, we are going to be sustained by his presence far more in the moments of rest and delight than we will in all of those moments of anxious doing. Guaranteed. I I once heard this presentation to pastors about avoiding burnout, and I'm going to leave you kind of with, with this Uh, I don't know what the stats of burnout are for others' jobs, uh, but it's super high among clergy. Uh, This is not a cry for help. I'm just just telling you. Um, But the fact that they have to actually give you these seminars as a pastor of how to avoid burnout just kind of tells you something. Uh, Most people take the seminar and then they burn out after that. But he had this illustration in there that that stuck with me. And the speaker started out with the statement of Jesus uh, from John chapter 10, verse 10. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And he gave us this image of like a battery, right? Think of your life like a battery. Um, 
Jesus has come to give you this life, to, to give it to you in the full. Jesus is the good shepherd who leads us to quiet waters and, and, and deep streams like Catherine talked about last week. It's this picture of abundance and goodness and rest. And the problem is in our culture, we only rest when we are almost to the end of our rope. Uh, if we're not burned out, we're like blacked out by lack of oxygen. And so we wait to rest until we are almost ready to drop. And, and I think, you know, particularly if you do the year in review of, of this last year, uh, there was a time and we were like, oh, just we can, we can get through, just wait till the summer hits and then everything's going to be fine. It's going it's to be, things are going to be better. And then it was, uh, Christmas is coming. We can make it until then. And then it was, oh, I'll just take a deep breath this summer, and then I'll be able to really rest. Right? All that moving the goalpost is just exhausting, right? I mean, we might not make it to Easter if we're not, like, taking rest. In his book on the Sabbath, Wayne Mueller makes this point. Sabbath requires surrender. If we only stop when we are finished with all of our work, we will never stop because our work is never completely done. If we refuse rest until we are finished, we will never rest until we die. Sabbath dissolves the artificial urgency of our days because it liberates us from the need to be finished. And so then when we do rest, do we ever get back to that full 100%? Or do we just get back to that place where we are just simply managing to that place where we're not simply exhausted. When we don't take the time to rest, we miss out on life to the full. We miss out on joy and and hope and love and intimacy and a a sense of, of wonder, our sense of call. When we don't rest, we don't have the margin to love well. And maybe it's because we don't pause long enough to allow Christ to renew us. And so I just want to ask, I mean, how many of us are living out of 80% when Jesus has come to give us life to the full? I don't think Sabbath is an optional part of our discipleship. It is a means that God has given us to love deeply, to love well. And friends, it is not about your salvation. Jesus has taken care of that. Jesus is the one who brings healing, but Sabbath is simply a sign of that rest of the kingdom that is available to you here and now. It's not about creating rules to oppress. It is about creating space for Jesus to do the work that Jesus loves to do which is to bring renewal. For Jesus, healing on the Sabbath was a way to experience delight. Uh, in the practices video this week, which you're going to see in just a moment, uh, it's all about kind of entering into, uh, into goodness. Uh, Sabbath is an invitation to say no to work and to worry and to err and demands, but It's also far more about saying yes to allowing the Spirit of God to meet you in that place of joy and delight. And all of that is so that you can be renewed. 
so that you can experience life to the full. When Jesus told, told stories about the kingdom of God, one of the most common images that he used was of a wedding feast, a party. It was this place of delight. It's a signpost of the feast that awaits us in the eternal city where we are with God, where God is with his people. And so every Sabbath we come to this meal and we have this small glimpse of what this party, what this feast looks like. This place where we can come and be renewed, where we can receive from God rest for our souls. And so friends, as we come to the table, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Friends, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat of this and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, this is my blood, the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. And so it is that whenever we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming his dying until he comes again in power and in glory. So friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. As we come, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, the table has set. Come, eat and drink. Remember and rejoice and be renewed.